I would like to welcome each and every person uh, here today. And uh, yesterday I and Sharda uh, flew from uh, uh, Boston. We had just spent the uh, past uh, uh, eight days uh, teaching at uh, the Insight Meditation Center at Barry in uh, Western Massachusetts. We finished there uh, uh, yesterday at uh, midday and then took the uh, uh, evening flight uh, across here. So I think we uh, arrived here in Woodacres probably about uh, one o'clock this morning. So um, um, if I fall asleep during the talk, uh, uh, please forgive me, I'll plead the Fifth Amendment. Uh, if you fall asleep, I can well understand. So I thought I should, um, <laughs> if I may, if I may uh, read uh, uh, to you what I um, actually wrote about a year ago. So Mary Ann, one of the uh, directors of uh, uh, Spirit Rock, who organizes the programs uh, here, sent a message across to me at uh, Gaia House and uh, kindly in invited me again to come and speak uh, here and to give a topic and some dis description for, for the day. And um, when I, uh, when I uh, arrived, uh, um, Mark, Mark Coleman, uh, Sharda's uh, uh, husband, who was uh, over on the East Coast for a few days as well, um, reminded me of what I'd written. And I said, oh no, did I write that? <laughs> So, it says, Monday, August the 24th, 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. Being open, protecting ourselves and other hopeless endeavors. <laughs> in this workshop, we will explore such popular concepts in spiritual life. We will examine our experiences around these notions. We will use the resource of teachings, meditation and inquiry to enlighten our existence. <laughs> Um, brackets, please do not bring your inner child. We hear there is no adult supervision. <laughs> so, please, now you know, you can now decide if you want to stay or go somewhere else. <laughs> so, um, and firstly, it's, uh, so as I said, it is a genuine delight to, uh, uh, to be here, uh, coming here regularly to the West Coast, uh, annually since um, 1982. Um, initially at uh, the invitation of uh, James Barras and uh, when I was here one year ago there was the building work just uh, taking place there and having uh, a walk around today with Lizzie and uh, Mark it's uh, simply breathtaking both what the Sangha of each and every one of you here in many many ways have uh, contributed to and what the extraordinary um, outcome of it is. And uh, it um, certainly, as far as I know, um, uh, the first major uh, international center uh, anywhere in the world where both uh, the community in cooperation with the purchase of the land has actually built a facility designed by caring and thoughtful people uh, which um, meets the needs of a very widespread community. A reflection of that is here in this hall, as well as those breathtakingly beautiful buildings 
just up the pathway. And the rest of us, IMS and, and Gaia House, basically we've been squatting in old convents for the last uh, 10 or 20 years or, 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 or so. So uh, all uh, uh, credit uh, to you all uh, here. <laughs> um, in terms of the actual day that we have here, there are a, a number of uh, features of it. If I may, I would like to speak to you for about uh, half an hour, uh, 30 minutes or so, uh, on these uh, particular areas and uh, uh, themes, and uh, why I have, uh, in a certain kind of way, um, expressed some concern or, or limitation. And I do think in any direct investigation uh, into our life, certain themes can begin to register very, very strongly uh, with us, and in their registration with us, genuinely can provide a source of both uh, uh, inspiration and uh, insight, and therefore needn't uh, be neglected uh, uh, totally. So if I just speak about uh, each one of these uh, three, there'll be opportunity later on for us to explore. So the first is uh, being open. and. Sometimes we look at ourselves in our in our day-to-day -day circumstances of life and uh, in that we experience some forms of limitation or contraction within ourselves and that may show it itself in um, in a way three primary areas I, I would say and each one of those certainly needs to be attended to. So sometimes that occurs through physical circumstances. We are experiencing some degree of ill health, uh, uh, injury, um, uh, energy difficulties, this um, increasing problem with energy that uh, human beings are experiencing in the secular consumer culture. And this has some gen effect on us. Not only is that influence and impact physical, but it also extends itself uh, to our feelings, our thoughts, our perceptions, our uh, outer uh, ways of looking as well. So it's not unusual when you and I are feeling tired, when you and I are feeling sick, we've hurt ourselves, uh, there's energy problems or whatever it might be. In such times we don't feel particularly open. Sometimes we don't wish to communicate we, there are many things which we are saying due to the circumstances which are, are arising. No, I, I, I don't feel connected with you or with that at the moment. I don't feel particularly uh, receptive or, or whatever. And therefore that we notice within ourselves that there is a genuine necessity, and I call it a necessity, to actually say to ourselves, no, I'm not open at this time. But if you and I are carrying a strong picture image, storyline, and especially a view with regard to ourselves which has the dreaded word should in front of it, <laughs> then that which is intended to be a support, which is intended to be a reminder to us in particular circumstances, then be makes the judgment afterwards. And so then we say, well, I don't at this time due to I should be but I'm not. And then the judgmental voice comes in, well, I should be, 
They should be open. And yet the actuality, I'm just talking in physical terms, is actually inhibiting, understandably enough, that capacity to be open to a variety of circumstances that may be going on around us or actually may be going on within us as well. So it's vital and important that in life that we bring awareness to circumstances and we see, therefore, very well and very clearly that being open is not a generalized view for existence. It's not some um, ideal mode of behavior which we uh, ought to be carrying in all circumstances as some kind of whisper or intimation about what liberation is. If I'm really open, then I'm closer to a liberated life. If I'm really open in all things, then uh, I'm closer to knowing what true enlightenment is. So, th so one has to bring wisdom to the recognition and acknowledgement of what it is, of the practical and beneficial aspects of being open, and acknowledging at times, I'm just speaking physically for the moment, of um, not uh, being uh, open because there are other, other priorities. And I would say that this is quite common in uh, everyday human experience, but what I'm pointing out and trying to stress here is the importance of being clear about the value of being open and being clear and acknowledging freely when one isn't. And therefore not carrying should and not carrying the judgmental voice that easily begins to weigh on us because instead of the wisdom of being open in appropriate circumstances, we've made it a religious ideology, we've made it a spiritual belief, we've made it, uh, we've bought some new age package or some Buddhist message or whatever the distraction is. With matters of the heart, a little more delicate, maybe sometimes more gross and, uh, and sometimes uh, more, more, more subtle. And I think it's probably the area in our inner life that we frequently and generally associate uh, what it is to be open. And we look to our inner life and to our uh, uh, feelings and uh, emotions, and, and there are many ways that in the movement of the inner life, that there is a, a, a position rather similar to the one I just previously referred to, which again carries with it some kind of view about uh, being open. And then we have these uh, expectations, and if, again, if we're carrying it around in any kind of baggage, not only do we uh, uh, use it on ourselves, but equally we use it with regard to, o to others. So instead of being a support and a friend for some clarity and insight, it becomes a wretched weapon. And we say, oh yes, but you're not really open. <laughs> you're not open to what I'm saying. You're not open to uh, what I have discussed. And sometimes people in life, in terms of laying the number on other, other, other people, forget some rather uh, timely advice of, of, of the Buddha in um, dealing with um, um, matters uh, which are difficult with regard to another person. And 
the uh, uh, simple and rather practical advice was, was if one has something which is of importance to speak with another about, let, let it be the, the right, right person. So if we're going to slag somebody off, at least let's do it to their face and, and, and not tell all the neighbours. And uh, secondly uh, is the right uh, subject matter. And in that communication, what matters, especially in things which are really, really do concern one, and, and particularly in, in, in uh, the field of uh, one's relationship to another, what's vital is precision. It's vital to keep in tune with the fact. When we lose tune with the fact of the simple thing which we have a, a concern about, and we slide from the particular into the generalization, it's hopeless. Once we go into the you always number and you, you uh, never, then of course it's gross, it's crude, crude it's offensive, it's uh, unfair, and it's inaccurate, and uh, uh, the outcome of, of, of that uh, imprecision is quite often in the communication with the other person, she, he or they will do one of three things. And it's a sure sign one's gone up a blind alley. One is the person will attack back. What about me? But what about you? You always... The other, of course, will become um, very defensive. So when, wherever we are uh, under some kind of attack, sometimes, especially if it's getting um, sent with a few uh, um, kind of um, um, verbal uh, 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 cruise missiles. I see uh, wretched government has, has gone into uh, reactivity and revenge, and I might mention that later on. <laughs> In fact, I almost certainly will. <laughs> <laughs> And so sometimes we attack, sometimes attack back, as personally as much as p uh, uh, politically, in all the dreadful pain and the obscenity of it all. Secondly, uh, we get defensive. And sometimes when we are, are, are under attack, and then we notice the tendency to, uh, especially un in, under the influence of rage, negativity, hostility, uh, abuse, or whatever, that inwardly, in the defensiveness that comes, even if we're trying to be clear and not defensive, we have a, an uncanny and rather unhappy, unhappy habit of actually sounding very defensive. So anything we say, say seems, may seem to the other person. And so sometimes, I know for myself, when uh, some uh, disagreement or, and then the other person is getting very upset or angry or whatever, you know, say sometimes, when you've cooled out a bit, whatever, go and have a cold shower or something, and then, and then afterwards we'll talk. Sometimes it's simply not, I think, not worth it when under incredible aggression from other people to try to cope with it with words. <coughs> and there's a long-standing tradition, many of you will know, of the importance and of the necessity of maintaining noble silence. Sometimes it's just not worth trying to reason with people who are being thoroughly unreasonable. 
we keep our peace, we keep our noble silence. Some situations, and sometimes that keeping of noble silence is a place for our integrity, and sometimes that may be for a long period of time. And the other, of course, <coughs> when uh, we're carrying views in the name of being open, I really, no, I really need to be open with you about uh, when we're carrying those, because we love this word, being open, it really is, it, it's the rot has set in. And, and so, in being, being open and using this uh, 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 language to launch the cruise missiles upon, that sometimes it brings about the withdrawal from the other person. Some people just can't handle it, they can't hack it. And so sometimes the, the language of being open is supposed to be a step towards intimacy, that we can get close to each other with our grimace of smiles, that we can really understand each other or whatever. And so we're putting this out to the other person or persons, left, right and centre. We can't make out, why are they withdrawing? Actually, getting close is not actually happening. The gap is actually, moment by moment, word <laughs> by word. And every time the word I, you and us is entering into it, it gets a little bit bigger. And this is the nearest experience that some people have of, in of, infi of infinity. <laughs> So, yet yeah, all, tragically in all of this, all can be in the language of being open. The language of being open is, is being used with mantra-like enthusiasm. <laughs> but the actual actuality of, is it skillful means? Is there wisdom there? Is there the capacity from each and every one of us to be able to hear what's happening as we talk, as we communicate, as, as, as the uh, uh, language of this is, is, is being, being used. Sometimes we speak of, um, uh, not so much or through our experience um, on, at the outer level, still keeping with emotional life for a moment, but uh, also to the inner level as well. And um, just um, uh, walking um, up the, uh, the pathway to the, uh, uh, the meditation hall and the rather beautiful uh, 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 buildings there, that the, uh, some of the buildings um, have the name of what the Buddha refers to as divine abidings. You know, so basically and essentially uh, in the, uh, the teachings of, uh, of the Dharma, uh, as many of you will know, there's very little reference, and then there's like basically no, I think one sentence actually in the whole of the text, of, uh, of the language of uh, God in the way that we might know from uh, Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. And the high priority and the high emphasis, and I think this is a very important point, um, is on the quality of the heart. And therefore, if we are speaking of divinity in a, in a very deep and profound way. It's not related to having certain beliefs in G-O-D. It's not related to having beliefs in a book or texts 
about uh, 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 God, uh, that all takes a very secondary place in the Dharma. What matters and essentially matters is what's the condition of the heart. And therefore, the teachings have pointed out to us and reminded us again and again that what matters is what comes out of the heart, not what we believe. I mean, this is a radical departure from conventional, many conventional religious uh, 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 beliefs, where the belief matters more than the heart. And what's the matter, uh, or the condition of the heart? What really matters in it is love, metta, deep friendship. As one of the buildings there is a reminder to each woman and man who walks up there. Another feature of this is uh, compassion. That means the action, not just having sweet thoughts about, the action which helps to contribute to the resolution of uh, problems of life at any kind of level, social, political, personal, communal or whatever. Thirdly is joy. And the fourth one, which uh, matters as much as the other three, and um, rather unfortunately, I do feel at times, um, tends to be um, on the tail end. So in other words, in the uh, Dharma community and in the tradition of uh, uh, Vipassana, um, at the moment, generally speaking, there are a number, and very important they are too, of what is called metta-retreats. It means loving-kindness retreats, in which the cultivation of the heart is really actively developed. And there are a number of teachers here and worldwide who are engaged in this. So far, there aren't retreats on the fourth one, which is equanimity. Now, may maybe the numbers would shrink dramatically. We, we, we realize that it doesn't sound as, as thrilling to, <laughs> to uh, come to uh, equanimity or, or, or whatever. But it has a very, it has, it's a place of divine abiding. Therefore, it signifies its significance in the four is equal to living with joy and gratitude, appreciation, which is the, the, the third one, living with compassion, commitment to a resolution of suffering, and living with deep friendship towards all beings, which is the, the uh, teaching of the first one. And so say, wh what does equanimity have? What's its relationship to really cultivate, as the Buddhist Buddha, Buddha uh, said, fabulous metaphor, he said, make your mind, and therefore heart, as steady as a mountain in a hurricane. That's what equanimity is about. Now how does that relate, we might ask, how does that relate in life to openness? And one of the things which uh, um, uh, uh, occurs, and this is um, not an unusual um, uh, circumstance, I mentioned um, here, to go back to my um, one-liner, please do not bring your inner child. We hear there is no adult supervision. And uh, I think um, equanimity has a rather serious and important part to uh, play uh, in all of this. Sometimes, and of course as a Dharma teacher and as a uh, teacher uh, working in retreats and with people, like a number of you as well, in different fields, day in and day out, through one's life, one hears the traumas and the dramas of uh, people's lives, both in the past and in the present, and uh, what might be uh, in the future, particularly uh, health issues, etc. 
And some of these stories are just absolutely heart-touching in the, what one um, has to listen to there. And others of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Some situations, maybe in a meditation, maybe just one day or whatever, there is recollection of um, some event in the past which was incredibly and extraordinarily painful. We can talk of exploitation, you and I, we can talk of uh, abuse, we can talk of tragedy, we can talk of loss, of bereavement, we can talk of hurt or conflict or harm or very painful uh, uh, environments which take place. And um, just on, on that point, I think rather um, important point as well, um, when I was um, here about a, a year ago, uh, uh, Gail, who's uh, one of the wonderful uh, supporters here at Spirit Rock, I was um, at her home, uh, this is uh, Gail Seneca, and she uh, had some copies of the New Yorker um, magazine, and, uh, which I hadn't seen for, for years. So uh, I was, she had a number of them lying around the house. I thought, my goodness, there's some good stuff in this. You know, it wasn't my kind of conception of the magazine, but uh, I heard later that they're losing $10 million a year, but <laughs> small change in New York. And um, so I read some. She very, very kindly and very, very sweetly sent uh, uh, me a dis subscription. So once a week, I. Um, getting away from people and the computer, make my pilgrimage to the local coffee shop in uh, Totnes, where I, where I live, and take the New Yorker. So in, the, in an August issue, I, a psychologist, there's a lovely feature in there, I totally recommend it to, to, uh, for you to uh, read, um, of an insight sparked from a sentence by another psychologist or sociologist about one's past and one's upbringing. And, I mean, I may not be fairly or accurately reporting, you know, what she said, but uh, something that, uh, um, in various ways, it's nice to see that things that one has been saying for years gets a little bit confirmed by uh, some, somebody else. It's, you know, sometimes it seems rare. And uh, so, as you know, quite often, uh, and it's not an, easy, quite not, not an easy issue, and it relates to the inner child issue, that quite often there has been a primary focus in our uh, 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 society for understandable reasons that some of the problems of adult life are emerging out of what's happened in the home in early life. And therefore the cause-effect thinking is fairly, fairly common. This is a British understatement. <laughs> and therefore the way we have been nurtured, or the lack of the way we have been nurtured, has, has its consequences, uh, etc. And that cause-effect has been a fairly strong kind of view. There are now, uh, in other views are also, some almost competing, but I think um, also very important to consider, what in um, uh, contemporary scientific language is called genetic factors, hereditary factors, as another influence. The East will put it, will call it past lives, much the same thing. Yeah. 
And another uh, factor which is very important is the environment. What kind of environment, what kind of place, what we were surrounded with when we were brought up. And the other, which is one of the insights of the, the psychologist, I thought was an excellent and very insightful art, uh, article, was peers, one's peers as a child. And, uh, and how much one is actually following and imitating the peers, the childhood friends, what's going on in the school. And therefore, instead of think, I'm drawing some conclusions here, instead of thinking exclusively childhood, parents, adulthood, we need to expand Dharma teaching a much wider perception and make it very, very clear with ourselves about the nature of what the Buddha said so insightfully of what is called dependent arising. And in that dependent arising, acknowledging genetic factors, acknowledging childhood factors, acknowledging children's relationship with their peers, which are a strong uh, form for identity of who, who they uh, are, and acknowledging what kind of environment the person was brought up in. And therefore, we actually expand our field of awareness to a more clearer understanding of dependent arising, rather than being so narrowly exclusively as it can be, focused in one area, nurturing or the lack of it in relationship to parents or, or whoever brought us up. And in, I mentioned uh, all, all of this in context, as I say, in relationship to the inner child and to equanimity. And what I mean by that is that sometimes, particularly those, those here who uh, look to the childhood with uh, a lot of uh, pain and anguish. Sometimes in the emotional life, we might say to ourselves, or even say to another, why can't I have the capacity in my relationship to the past to, as it were, completely do an emotional turnaround and go from resentment to love, to go from hurt to forgiveness, to go from non-acceptance non, um, uh, to, un, to uh, compassion for those who abuse me, or whatever, whatever the issue might be. I think sometimes we are asking way, way too much of ourselves. There are some people who do that, have that capacity in one. One bows down with uh, appreciation for that emotional maturity that is able to make that leap. You'd be hard-pressed to find the word forgiveness in the Buddhist text. doesn't appear very much at all. When somebody or a situation has been really hurt by, it may not be oneself, maybe an outer circumstances, and as a political activist I can think of plenty of situations where I don't feel particularly forgiving for the perpetuators of suffering. But can there be an equanimity? Can the heart and mind be so steady like the mountain in the wind, which is clear about it, is quite unambiguous about it, and say this equanimity to the events of the past and the events of the present is a state of the heart of divine abiding that one is with the divinity of the inner life in that 
as much as the Buddha has made absolutely clear, as much as with joy, as much as with compassion and forgiveness, as much as with uh, uh, kindness and friendship. And therefore, not necessary to ask too much of yourself. Not necessary. These are teachings which are down to earth, not teachings to that we ought to be able to, we ought to be open to. But it would not speak like that. Dharma, dharma is a dharma of liberation, not a, a dharma of, for some, unreal expectations and ideals upon oneself, which can end up feeling rather disappointed and feeling a failure because one feels I should be able to forgive. The other uh, um, area with regard to the, uh, this, of course, is uh, concentrated a little bit um, uh, on the first one here, being, uh, being open. And I think similarly with um, uh, uh, intellectual uh, uh, aspects. And therefore, in the, the, the field and area of, uh, of, of thought. And, and just a, a small um, example of... Uh, of, of what I mean, uh, um, um, having the privilege to travel to different parts of the world and all that uh, can be implied in that and a number of, t of you as well here have also travelled quite extensively and uh, two places which uh, have come and do mean a lot uh, to me, uh, one is uh, India and uh, my heart just starts to see uh, Namaste as I walked in the uh, there, Namaste uh, is uh, Hindi. Good morning, I suppose you could say. <laughs> and uh, um, and and the other place which also matters a great deal to me is uh, Israel. And I have the uh, privilege of uh, going there uh, every uh, year and. Uh, do uh, encourage those of you who haven't been to uh, that part of the world uh, to really uh, think about uh, going. It's a, it's a remarkable uh, 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 place. There's um, no group on earth like the Israelis for um, being the high priests of worry. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and tend to, they worry about everything. It's really uh, <laughs> considerable achievement in the psyche. Um, <laughs> and, um, and also Dharma friends there, not only with regard to the workshops and the retreats and the various other events, also have uh, initiated, uh, which uh, we started actually together a few, day, a few years ago, um, the meetings with the Palestinians called Face to Face, which is getting funding from the Oslo Agreement. It's a situation where Sometimes, just not only matters of experience here, but I'm what I'm thinking here is the mind, the, the intellectual uh, aspect, the thought uh, uh, field. So sometimes we can feel quite closed off simply because of the mode of thinking about circumstances and uh, situations. And we've got used to a way of thinking. And, and in that, there is the I, this is important here, the I, or the we, or the us, links in with the thinking. And these two get 
united, it almost gets stuck together. And so the I comes in with the thinking and it says, I am a, I am an Israeli, I am a Palestinian, or whatever it might be. Or in the divisions within the country, it's, um, I may not use a precise word, but it might be, um, I am secular. And all the beliefs that go with secular culture and secular life. But then the I is in relationship and contrast with those who say, I am religious. And the gaps there are, uh, can be enormous. Some of you will know uh, far better than I in all of this. So the mind gets used to a way of thinking of I and certain thoughts running together, I and certain views running together, I and certain beliefs running together, and the I and the thought world gets a solidification around itself. It's then, naturally enough, we begin to associate with others with the same mindset. We actually move in the circles of the I and the thought having a close relationship. And this then sets up some uh, congestion in the mind or some substance, or it sets up us and them. You know, one sees the proliferation of cults around the world. I don't need to go into all of this with you. But nevertheless, there's a thought in the eye getting stuck together. It not only affects and somewhat imprisons our own inner life, but correspondingly affects the perceptions outwardly as well. <coughs> and one of the heartening things in all of this is when people have enough space around that consolidation of thought and their identity, in this case with the nation-state or the aspiring nation-state in the Palestinian case, to actually say something else matters more. And so this year when we, as we've done with previous years, uh, a number of Israelis uh, went across to uh, Shrem, to uh, 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 Nablus uh, on, the West, on the West Bank, and I remember referring to this uh, last year or the year before here, and maybe extraordinary disagreements because we're talking in this case of two of the most highly politicized communities that I've ever met in my life anywhere in the world are the Israelis and the Palestinians. And when they meet, meet, meet together, of course there are differences. Differences in what? Differences in perceptions. Differences in the ways of thinking about things. Differences in the views of the history. Differences in the views of what has to be done. And so sometimes individuals don't feel open. And then there's some, of course, some difficulty and, and tension which arises. But can there be, despite the differences which need to be respected, can there be the sense of something behind what? Behind the label. Behind the label. Secular, religious, Israeli, Palestinian, or whatever it might be. At the moment, U.S. Muslim, given the events of the last terrible week. Something behind the label which in some way or other expresses a common humanity. That that perception is so clear, so stark, 
in the way that it's obvious. One can never lose it. Buddhists say, will say, being aware of the Buddha nature. It's the same thing. It's to be aware of a common humanity which is so strong and so deep in the genes of one's being that one can never slip nor slide into the fragmentation of identification with labels and the suffering which is born out of it. It can't have, can never have been a war on this earth without clinging and holding to labels. There can never have been any racism, sexism, judge, the judgmentalism of existence without a belief in the label of what we see. Dharma teachings are basically to send a cruise missile right into those labels. To blow them away. And that we find, therefore, we carry the label, oh, I am English, and then we have to go through this pathetic, trivial little ritual of walking through immigration <laughs> and giving the passport over. I mean, people have to do this to travel on the earth, which is ours. It's really the height of middle-aged thinking to me. <laughs> so that perception which breaks down the holding, the identification, the thinking to see something common. And therefore the response is out, out of that. And in the, the group uh, in Srebrenica uh, this year, some uh, young uh, Palestinians came, 14, 15 years old. My God, did they give some experienced political Israeli activists a hard time? They've got their case worked out. They're doing it day in and day out in the schools. And, and, and with one, she's a young woman, 14 years of, of age. And uh, every time she spoke, we all went to sat to attention for him. And there's maybe sometimes generalization, sometimes this, sometimes that, but the directness. Yet with warmth and heartfulness and clarity and, and trying to find ways for people to understand each other. All of that means seeing something common. And sometimes, again, we don't necessarily feel open to everything we hear. Don't necessarily agree with everything that, as it were, one side says or the other. All that's part of common uh, human interaction. Nothing wrong in having a good, solid argument with somebody. But something common doesn't fade. <coughs> so I say, teachings is to say, okay, there is, to just conclude here, there is openness in life. There. It has a value clearly in specific circumstances and situations, definitely. To exaggerate its value will make for problems. To fail to recognize in life where uh, openness uh, is either too much of an ideal, shows a lack of clarity and wisdom. To see that sometimes equanimity is important. Sometimes to recognize what the situation is important. Sometimes to see the particular place and environment or whatever uh, is important. Therefore we have the right to say no. Therefore you and I were not clinging 
to beliefs in openness. We're putting wisdom first, clarity first, as a contribution to a genuinely liberated, enlightened life. And therefore equanimity plays a, a very important part in all of this, both to what was, to what is, and to what might be. And therefore acknowledging sometimes we're not open to everything. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings see into things. May all beings be as steady as the mountain in the wind. So let's just have two or three uh, quiet minutes together, uh, shall we? And then I'll speak a little bit to you about the, the day. sitting, being here and now. Just two or three minutes of uh, meditation on the uh, principle and practice of being steady. Being steady in the circumstances of life making this our meditation, just to be steady. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.